Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll, and this is the Progressive Commentary Hour, a continuation of our conversations with remarkable minds. The theme today, the unipolar globalist elites, new green revolution, and dystopian vision for the future. They say they know best, do they? They say that we should all be appreciative of them being stakeholders, controlling everything, we will own nothing, and we'll feel good about it, and be happy. Is that even possible? To deal with this, we're going via Zoom to Dr. Vandana Shiva. Dr. Shiva is an internationally renowned environmental and social activist, a leading pioneer behind India's, and for that matter, the globe's ecological and sustainable agricultural mo movement. In recent years, she's become known as the Gandhi of Grain, Dr. Shiva is the founder of a very important organization, Navdan Yah, an Indian-based organization dedicated to food and seed sovereignty, the restoration of organic farming, economic justice, and the preservation of indigenous knowledge and culture. Uh, also, they have an international branch in Italy and the Earth University Learning Center for agroecology. And for several decades, Vandana has traveled the world speaking on behalf of women's rights and against biopiracy, globalization, and patenting of indigenous knowledge by large agricultural and pharmaceutical corporations. Her activist efforts have created grassroots organizations throughout the developing world to counter GMOs and empower small farmers in their communities. She's received numerous international awards, including the Alternative Nobel Prize, what is called the Right Livelihood Award, the UNEP's Global 500 Award, and the UN's Earth Day International Award. The award-winning documentary, The Seeds of Vandana Shiva, was released last year, and among her many important books, now about 20 in number, her most recent is Terra Viva, My Life in the Biodiversity of Movements which recounts her personal journey, her philosophy, and various activist movements in a life devoted to preserving human dignity and the biodiversity of the earth. And her, she has many organizations, but her websites include, let me spell it for you, navdanya.org and navdanyalternational.org. Nice to have you with us today. Hello, Gary. It's been quite a few years since you were on this program. I'm delighted to have you return. I just wanted you to speak about the new unipolar green revolution that's being spearheaded by the global elite and the corporate banking club at the World Economic Forum, and it's in session this week. Right now, as you know, the World Economic Forum is meeting in Davos, Switzerland. In the past, you've been, uh, you've spoken at the forum and also joined the protests outside the conference center, a unique situation. So you know perfectly well who these people are and their global agendas. Part of Klaus Schwab's and, and company's Great Reset Project, or what they call the Fourth Industrial Revolution, is advancing industrial agriculture, not home farms, not sustainable organic gardening. They're totally against that. They also fully support GMOs, genetically modified organisms, 
as a heartbeat of their green revolution. Like, we don't need to eat organic, we can eat bugs, or we can eat genetically engineered meat. And of course, Bill Gates is buying up all the major farmland in the United States. He's now the largest single owner of farmland in the United States. And of course, it's not to plant sustainable farming. Also, they think that they can give us better seeds than the heirloom seeds that have been used throughout history. They also argue we need new and cheaper fertilizer because industrial agriculture is completely based upon chemical fertilizers. But because they unquestionably know about fertilizer's carbon footprint, we're probably looking at carbon credits, and surely the consumer will in some manner be picking up all the cost, and they all the profits, and then this all wrecks Western uh, life, especially in Africa and parts of Asia. And uh, so I'd like for you to unpack all this. It's very complicated, but here in the United States, it's been sold as what we must do now, the new Green Deal. Um, almost a trillion dollars devoted just yet with the promise of getting rid of all the current fossil fuels, um, coal, gas, and oil, and focusing exclusively upon solar and wind. And my own perspective, and I'll just share this and I'll uh, turn it all over to you, is that being an environmentalist my entire life and doing films on it, and, and the latest one is Last Call for Tomorrow, I have to ask, why aren't we looking at what it costs to create solar meaning the minerals and the exploitation of people to get it out of the ground and all the uh, all of the windmills that they have, what it's doing to the environment, to birds, to people living in the area. And if they have a windless or bladeless wind power, which I know several companies do, why isn't that being promoted? Why aren't they looking at geothermal that is non-polluting? Why aren't they looking at wave power from the oceans, which is non-polluting? And yet everything is in the hands of a few, just a few, led by Al Gore. So I think that what they're saying is buy green, which means buy from our company. Don't ask what the money's for, who's getting it. Don't ask what happens to the environment. And people are just saying, okay, go ahead. Do what you want. As long as for the future, we're for it. And I believe that that is a gross error of not looking at what they're doing in detail and saying, is it really making a difference? Will it help save the planet? That said, the form is yours. Hello again, Gary. Um, you know, I looked at the Green Revolution in 1984 because India was the first place where this thing called the Green Revolution was implemented. It was just another name for industrial agriculture, chemical agriculture. And the chemical industry had been trying to introduce it uh, since we became independent, since the 50s. But as I've said, our native seeds, which are tall varieties because they feed animals, the soil, as well as human beings, they would lodge when chemical fertilizers were applied to them. So Mr. Borlaug, who got the Nobel Peace Prize for contributing to peace, and instead he left Punjab in a state of conflict and war. Uh, 15,000 people were killed. And that's what asked, made me ask the question, where is the peace? 
Why is this more like war? Borlaug then made, literally made dwarf varieties so that they could take up more chemicals. The idea that they produce more was totally false because a smaller plant is less biomass. It's less food for the animals, less food for the soil, and it's inferior food because at now the data is out. Chemically fertilized soils are nutritionally empty. And because of that, food has lost 70 to 80% of its nutrition. It is nutritionally empty mass that is measured in weight, but has nothing to do with nourishment and health. From there, they went to the second green revolution, which was now we changed the genes in order to claim that we've made something new and can take a patent on it. And that's why I've always said that GMOs for the biotech industry, which is the chemical industry, is God move over. We are the creators and we will collect rents from the farmers. That was their wish. That's what they laid out in 1987 at a conference organized in Geneva at the UN in a small place called Bojave outside Geneva. The chemical industry said, we need to have GMOs in order to take patents. Those who will take the patents will be the winners. We'll be five companies at the end of the century, which at that time was the year 2000, 23 years ago. Uh, those companies will control food and health. And to get there, we have to have an international treaty. That is what became the GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, which then became the World Trade Organization when they signed it in Marrakesh. The WTO basically was designed by a handful of companies. We've had trade before, and we've had international trade before. India was the leading international trade leader. Um, we used to export spices. We were 36% of the world's economy. But we used to export spices as a spice of life trade, a little bit of spices, not at the cost of food security. And it enriched the Europeans' diet. It enriched the flavors. And that's why a bag of pepper used to be exchanged for a bag of gold. And part of the reason the East India Company was created was to control the spices and to control the indigo and to control the cotton. The WTO was a replay of the old colonialism. When the East India Company came to India, they actually literally wrote a free trade agreement with the Mughal emperor of that time, Farukshir. So the word free trade was not new for us. We'd heard it before in colonialism. And it is freedom for the corporations and unfreedom for the people. The three agreements that make the WTO, in addition, to the normal trade agreements is first an intellectual property agreement, owning life. That was drafted by Monsanto. They said at a conference, in drafting this agreement, we were the patient, the diagnostician, and the physician all in one. This is how they wanted to own life and patent seed. The second agreement was an agreement called agriculture agreement. This was drafted by Cargill. Cargill's vice president was deputed to be the US agriculture negotiator. And this agreement is really market grab, market capture. The third agreement is something fancy called sanitary and phytosanitary agreement. It's supposed to be about health. 
But it's all basically about the junk food industry using pseudo hygiene measures to shut down local food systems and impose junk food and through it, the chronic disease epidemic we've seen since the WTO. 1995 is when WTO came into being. Those of us who knew what it was going to do had organized as the International Forum on Globalization. And the International Forum on Globalization mobilized people when the Seattle conference of the WTO was to take place. As you remember, the WTO meeting was destroyed. They couldn't hold it the first time. But WTO had been announced by the World Economic Forum as the new constitution of the world. The World Economic Forum has said the national constitutions will not matter in the future. Exactly what they're saying now, that in the future, it will be the WTO that will be the constitution of the world. But what's WTO? Rules written by corporations for their profits, for their control. Now, because we shut down WTO in Seattle, I think this mafia in Davos got a bit surprised. So they invited me to the Davos meeting to address, and I was there debating the World Bank, debating the, the DuPonts of the world. They asked me to come back. In fact, they asked me to be an advisor on globalization and environment. I went back the next year, and that year, the protesters had been, you know, they were being arrested on trains and in cars, so they had come over the slopes on skis and were protesting outside, and they rang me up and asked me to join them. And of course I was going to join them because I'm part of the movement. And as I walked through the snows to join them, police started to hit me. I stayed to address my fellow citizens, civic society, and then walked back. And there used to be a vice chairman of WTO who somehow disappeared after that. But I told him, you know, you have to do a press conference because this is not right. You call us as delegates, and when we step out with the, in the public, we become criminals. This kind of you know, double standards will not work. So we called a press conference. We announced that uh, there has to be an apology from Mr. Khrushchev, and uh, that uh, I will never return till the apology comes. He has not yet apologized. I think he fired his vice chair because he organized the press conference for us. So Mr. Klaus Schwab very clearly has been uh, groomed, groomed by Kissinger, that's so clear, Kissinger who was behind so many wars, um, to create this totally unaccountable, unelected forum okay. to, to counter it from society. That the corporations have their forum, people must have theirs. Uh, but unfortunately, it's still not running, especially after COVID. Uh, but we do need, we need the, uh, democracy forums everywhere. We need social forums everywhere to show that the World Economic Forum is not the voice of people and is definitely not the voice of the planet. And it's interesting that, you know, at the time when we shut down WTO, they were insisting the environment does not matter. Today, they are using climate change as the new reason for owning the resources of the world. As you mentioned, Bill Gates is the biggest farmland owner of America, but then he's also with the others, an architect of this net zero uh, calculus that we, have, we can continue to pollute, but we must find sinks and offsets somewhere else. And that in, a, in, a, in effect is basically saying for 
the indigenous people in the forest, the farmers doing organic, we now will control their farming for our carbon dumping. Um, and you know the financial system is already gearing up to this net zero and the carbon offsets. And they are planning, they're literally planning, and Rockefeller, Rockefeller was behind the Green Revolution. Rockefeller was behind the second Green Revolution. Rockefeller is now behind this totally fake false solution to climate, the false green, the fake green, the green of greed. Um, and last year they floated something called the natural asset companies. And these natural asset companies uh, uh, will own nature as financial assets. And while the earth is being destroyed, while the rivers are dying, while the forests are disappearing, while the soil is dying, on Wall Street, they will magically multiply money to $4,000 trillion. That's the economy they're looking at, a fictitious economy controlling the real economies of the people, something I've written about in Oneness versus 1%. And in agriculture, their dystopia is farming without farmers, food without farms. Farming without farmers is the fourth industrial revolution you talked about, which uh, Mr. Schwab's is pushing so hard. And for him to write, just as soon as COVID struck, for him to write COVID-19, the Great Reset, was basically showing exactly where they wanted to turn the world and use a crisis to create new control systems. The fourth industrial revolution is a merger of biotechnology, information technology, financial technology. And, and in agriculture, besides the chemicals and synthetic fertilizers, besides the GMOs and now gene editing with Mr. Gates has pushed so hard, they're now talking about digital agriculture. And digital agriculture is nothing but surveillance agriculture because you can't grow food through a drone in the sky or a satellite in the sky. All you can do is get a little bit of the data and then use that data, which you mine from the farmers, to sell back to them as the big data that will be the new oil and then create a new dependency. Worse, they're talking about you know, food without farms lab food, but of course they'll still have land because no matter how much fiction they create, they will need feedstock. And that feedstock will be larger and larger acreages of GMO crops grown chemically by the buyers and Monsanto buyer has said, this new trend is going to create bigger opportunities for us because we are the only ones who grow row crops, which is the wrong way to grow do farming. We should grow mixtures and biodiversity. We grow raw stock crops, and now we will make agriculture the production of raw material like carbohydrates and protein to feed the lab food. So it's the end of food as we know it. You know, you can go to the field and get a tomato and eat it. You can go and pick up your carrot. You can go pick up your lattice and eat it. You can take your wheat and grind it into flour. Now they want to make sure that no food comes from the soil to us, the big connection of health. Food, in my view, is the currency of life. Good food is the basis of health. Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine. Ayurveda says, Annam Sharva Osadi, food is the best medicine. They want to turn food into the new disease-creating system. We know ultra-processed foods are responsible for 75% of the chronic diseases. This 
ultra, ultra, ultra processed food in the labs will be deadly. But after those same people who are pushing it are the same big pharma. So for them, it's a never ending profit stream and a, a control stream. But most importantly, the fake food that they're pushing has to create a fake science and a fake economics. And ultimately, a lie is the only way they will be able to govern us. That's why Davos must fold up. Our local democracies must thrive again to reclaim our national sovereignties. But a national sovereignty will not be reclaimed from the top. It will be reclaimed from people, through people everywhere saying, we are part of the earth. We will take care of the earth and we will not allow a group of gangsters to steal on the earth, our lives, our livelihoods and our future. I appreciate your overview. Here is my concern, and I, I know that you will be able to <clears throat> address it in the broadest possible context. You have been one of possibly three or 4,000 voices that I'm aware of over the last 50 years talking truth to power, but it is always interpreted through the mass media. So people, including in colleges and junior high schools, their curriculum is slanted towards a corporate interest and an outcome. I'll give you one example of this, and it relates to what we're discussing. During the pandemic, we witnessed all doors for open dialogue about the virus, its virulence or lack thereof, measures and to contain it, the efficacy and safety of the experimental RNA vaccines, cheaper effective treatments. All of these doors were slammed shut and nailed tight. And the only thing that remained was whatever their government and their health ministries told us. And if you dared challenge it, no matter what your background or credentials, you would be punished generally with a shaming, then a deplatforming, then a revocation of your medical license or your job. You'd be fired, even if you were tenured, even though you had truth on your side and you had independent science to show it. So we went through this remarkable change. Now, mind you, I've seen this my entire career coming from the alternative perspective. The good people who were saving lives were pillared and, and thrown under the bus, called quacks, and yet no one in orthodox medicine was able to achieve the success in uh, in reversing some of the disease that these alternative or complementary medical doctors and acupuncturists et cetera, were doing. So the truth did not matter. The success of therapies did not matter. The control of the narrative did. And the media from the New York Times and the Times of London and all the other Der Spiegel around the world, their messages were always in alignment with corporate interest and government interest, and the corporate interests control the government interest. When you have six corporations that control the vast majority of equities in the world, led by BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street and Berkshire Hathaway, uh, just those alone control about $40 trillion in assets. And so they control the interests in corporations. You don't see their name on the corporation, but they control Monsanto. They control Bayer. They bought Monsanto. They control Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola. They control Pfizer and, and Gilead and, and um, all the major pharmaceutical interests, Merck, etc. They control the seats who gets a, a, selected for the FDA commissioner or the, the top person at the CDC. 
They control everything. So on the one hand, we have the truth and what we could and should do, and that's coming from those like yourself who are activists, and then we have the reality of why we don't have mass movements, for example, in a lot of countries. We do in some, but not in the United States. We don't have, a, we don't have an anti-war movement here. We, we have a pro-war movement. Even Bernie Sanders and people call themselves progressives, but they're not, uh, support uh, the war in Ukraine and unlimited amounts of money and resources, though they won't do a thing to clean up uh, a poor neighborhood and get work to people. So that said, when you turn around and look to see that virtually all these are interrelated, the World Economic Forum is related to the Atlantic Council, which is related to the Trilateral Commission, which is related to the Business Roundtable, which is related to the Council on Foreign Relations, and all the think tanks, they're all interrelated. You've seen that because you've seen the people who have not one was elected end up at Davos and deciding our future. They're not experts in any of this. They are idiots, in my opinion, because everything they've suggested <laughs> up this point, I mean, they really are. If you got a lobotomy, you'd be smarter than uh, Professor Harari. All right. That's what we're dealing with. And yet he says there is no spirit. There is no soul. There is no God. Just stupid foolishness. You're just a, you're, you're a machine. And through transhumanism and through artificial intelligence and robotics, we will fix what is broken in your machine because we have the knowledge and we have the technology and we've got to get under your skin and chip you so that we know everything you're thinking because his latest thing is once we chip you and the new chip in the brain, we will know what you're thinking and we can make sure you don't have any negative thoughts. That's where they're going, total control overs. Could you then ask, uh, answer this question, if there is an answer, how can we get the average person to begin to stop being a silent observer, the silent majority, and become an active part of an empowered minority so that we start to have our voices heard, even if we're in the minority, and we can make some changes to stop them in their tracks. They're not going to give up power. They're not going to stop their agenda. But what can we do and what do you see will be the outcome at best or at worst? Uh, you know, this is exactly what inspired me to write Oneness versus the 1%, because I was puzzled, how did buy a buy Monsanto? And then we did the sums, and exactly what you've said, it's the Black Rocks and the Vanguards and State Streets that control all the corporations. And out of nothing, they have become the biggest drivers of not just, as you said, the economic system, but the political system. After all, BlackRock is now running Ukraine. You know, they've done an agreement and Ukraine is in the hands of BlackRock. Uh, when, you know, living through the kind of time we are living in, my mind goes back to 1484, 10, eight years before the Papal Bull that basically justified the destruction of in cultures across the world and the takeover of territories and land, the colonial project. Ten years, eight years before that was another papal board on the witch hunts to basically say if anyone thinks differently from what we allow, they must be killed. Nine million Europeans, mainly women, mainly learned women, mainly women who were healing, were killed as witches. What we are seeing today 
is a new church and a new witch hunt. The church is a con convergence of economic power, political power, and individual greed and limitless wealth. They are deciding what will be allowed to be spoken and what not will not be allowed to be spoken. They're deciding first and foremost the trajectories of their future profits. And if any voice comes in the way, then it must be silenced. This is why it's so Orwellian. It's so 1984 that every word means the opposite of what it should be meaning. How do we deal with this? First of foremost, find every creative space that you hold and defend it fiercely. At this point, real food, defending, growing, eating, distributing real food. You do that, I know, Gary. And this is the most revolutionary thing we can do. Because long before they can force everyone to eat insects and force everyone to eat pretend meat and force everyone to eat pretend blood, if we create gardens everywhere, if we create community food systems everywhere, this is what will spread. The final thing that we have to do is realize that every time there's been a project of dictatorship, of fascism of some kind, it has exaggerated its power. So, you know, Yuval Harari talking about a future where everything is, in, you know, unavoidable, it's predictable, 99% of us are useless, therefore we must be kept busy playing games, otherwise we will create havoc. Uh, that assumption that artificial intelligence will rule us is a very false assumption. First, because intelligences are so diverse, not just in humans, but the fact that all of life is intelligence, life itself is intelligence. The bacteria have intelligence, the plants have intelligence, the fungi have intelligence. And now all the research is confirming what indigenous people always knew, that life is intelligence and we are part of this amazing, living, vibrant planet. So the real science is the science of life. And that life, science of life, I'm just writing a foreword right now to a brilliant book on the science of life and about the narrowness of the mechanistic ideal. You know, I, the reason I did quantum theory was because I always found the mechanical explanation of things so shallow and so superficial. But the idea that life is a machine and, and you are a machine and we'll fix you, they've been trying again and again and again. Whether the Green Revolution, they tried to fix the plants. Second Green Revolution, they tried to fix the seed. This fixing has made things worse. Life is not a machine, and intelligence is everywhere. And all we have to do is widen our imagination and widen our relationships to realize that when we see ourselves as part of this amazingly intelligent, creative universe, all these little games of fixing chips and artificial intelligence start to look like immature boys' games. And of course, we have to defend our freedoms. We have to defend our freedoms fiercely. 
You know, I'm very fortunate. I, I, I think they manipulate my systems, my computers and my phone so much that half the time I don't really have these systems. You know, they don't function. And I think we have to minimize our dependence on the gadgets because this is where they'll control us. And how that they are trying, you know, my book, Oneness versus One Percent, I talked about the digitalization of the Indian currencies. Uh, we now, uh, you know, interestingly, more cash today than before, you know, because people trust cash. It's a direct relationship to other people. I think we have to create other currencies. We have to recognize that food is a currency, water is a currency, relationships are currency, support and solidarity is a currency. And if, and if we don't get limited and enslaved by their imagination, but create our own liberation through our imaginations, our pluralistic, our multiple imaginations, their game will not work. Their game will not work. As Gandhi said so beautifully in his little book called In Swaraj on freedom, he says, all you have to do is to watch this system and it will destroy itself. Okay, I, I accept what you're saying. Now compare that to across the board, the farmers, such as in, in, uh, in the Dutch farmers, 3,000 are being closed down and forced off the land, and yet that's going to cause food shortages around the world, and they don't care. Look at what happened in Canada when the, when the people went on strike, the uh, truckers, they destroyed them, they captured their income, wouldn't allow them to pay their bills, froze their bank accounts. And now you have artificial technology that you mentioned in the new digital surveillance system and tracking systems, of which Harari promotes, historically based perspectives about actual causes for the war in Ukraine and criticisms towards US and NATO global hegemony and much more are never discussed. And anyone who challenged the system by one person or 100,000 scientists challenging the COVID dogmas are attacked. And it's not like one person's attack or five. It's everyone everywhere in the world is attacked by their governments. Look at New Zealand. Look at Australia. Look at Germany and Great Britain and France as examples of being on the right side of an issue and being wronged by the media because you don't support them. So I haven't had a chance to ask um, a guest yet. I'm going to assume you're familiar with uh, Harari. I'm sure you've seen his talks. You mentioned, for example, that he says, and he actually said, the average person is useless and worthless, and uh, we're going to keep them occupied in a kind of soma, uh, uh, which came from uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, and we're going to keep them in a soma state by giving these meta uh, headpieces. They can program any kind of virtual reality they want, and that's all they're good for because they're good for nothing else. And it will only be a world of elites controlling everything. And uh, But we're going to make sure that wherever you're at, we know where you're at. Whatever you're doing, we know what you're doing, what you're thinking. And therefore, we can control the outcome. That's what they're actually telling us. They're not hiding any, this anymore. And even Barack Obama said uh, his favorite philosopher was uh, 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 Yuval Harari. Wow. 
Uh, maybe his philosophy led him to bring peace and freedom and prosperity to the good citizens of uh, of uh, Northern Africa's country, where Gaddafi had to be killed for the betterment of the world. No one's apologized for any of this. Everybody supports the people who caused this catastrophe um, in Libya. And by the way, Libya was the most advanced nation in Africa, 54 countries in Africa, the longest lifespan, longer than Americans, the most educated percentage of the population, more than in the United States or Great Britain. More people went to school, more educated. Free health care, free food. If you couldn't find a job, what you would have been mastering in that job, you were paid until you could find a job. And why he lived in a tent, he and his family, is because, and his mother and father, he said, until every Libyan has a house or apartment they live in, I will live in a tent. And yet, we thought he was just eccentric and uh, because he lived in a tent. No, that's a sacrifice he made, and everyone shared in the oil reserves, and they had no debt. And so what do we do? The good people of NATO, the good people of the World Economic Forum, and the United States and present, and they destroyed every single thing that mattered in Libya and stole all of its assets. And yet these are the very same people that have no trouble at the World Economic Forum telling the rest of the leaders there, we are the ones who are the smart ones. We're the best and brightest in the world, and we will take no one else's advice except our own. And someone says, well, why don't you take a look at what you've done? All of you are just, you're incapable of any deep thought. You're none are real intellects. Uh, you're technocrats and you're greedy. But no one's gotten up and said that to them, to their face. I don't know how they would respond. And I give you this just because Harari is the new replacement. He will lead all this. And I want people to be aware of that when Klaus Schwab passes. And so he's the golden child of the world elite. When Harari says that humans have the technological potential and knowledge now to eventually become immortal gods, about 60 years ago, the French sociologist uh, Jacques uh, Ellou and the Christian monk Thomas Merton predicted and warned that time would come when rather than technology serving humans, humans would serve technology. And from the radical scientific materialist perspective, we're only machines anyway, just like the technologies we use in our daily lives. So today, with the Internet and everything in our lives being digitally interconnected, that day seems to have dawned. In your view, what is the bigger picture that this statement is telling us about the type of future, the swabs, the Gates, the Bidens, the Larry Finks in the world want to bring forth? Well, the future they want is a future with very few people, just enough slaves to run their errands, and the rest as disposable people. You know, uh, Harari has said that, and um, the Facebook, the metaverse, Mark Zuckerberg, he, he said in his Harvard lecture, in the future, most people will be useless. And this idea of uselessness, is a very fascist idea because no one is useless. Everyone has potential of a different kind. And, uh, and they definitely want a world where all the resources of the earth belong to them. And that's why when they say, you will own nothing, you'll be happy, they're basically saying, and we will own everything. Because they've never said, we will create the commons 
to share. We will create public goods and public services so everyone has access to everything. They're saying you will own nothing, but you will rent everything. But if you have to rent something, then someone owns that. And just like the idea of Monsanto was that we would be dependent on Monsanto for seed, they are thinking that they will control all the fleets of cars, which we hire when we need to. BlackRock is investing in such a big way in housing, at, at just at the time when the housing crisis is getting so big. Um, you know, I studied in Canada for my PhD, and to see people thrown out of their homes and then beaten up by the police is something that breaks my heart. How could welfare economies turn so fast into fascist economies where the resources are all in the hands of the few and the rest of the people are treated as garbage and waste that needs to be dumped somehow? And before they get to their full agenda, the three things we definitely need to do, and I think more people are aware of the World Economic Forum now than three years ago. Everyone is now talking. And also, you know, they're so, so crude the way they're flying in private jets to Davos when the whole world is in crisis and the cost of living crisis overtaking everything. And they, you know, they're watching these people. And why do heads of state have to run to Davos? They should be governing their own countries. The most important thing we have to do is create our own imaginations and create our own realities. As long as we let them set the future, we will be disposable people. We are part of the extinction crisis. But if we find ways to say no to them, and do we find ways to create alternatives? On the food system, it's so clear. We don't have to eat fake food. We have the power and capacity to grow real food. What's missing is the justice element, because most of the subsidies go to poison people. Most of the subsidies go to make people sick with bad food. And that's where our tax money has to be redirected. And you know, we need a new democracy movement around taxation. After all, no government generates money. Governments appropriate money from the people, and then they subsidize the extractors to extract faster and bigger. And the third thing we definitely need to do is realize that we are not machines and we cannot be manipulated and we cannot be re-engineered. We are amazingly spiritual beings, ecological beings, compassionate beings, cooperative beings, and we are interrelated in such deep ways to the rest of life on Earth. And that's why I wrote Earth Democracy, because I said, unless we widen our identity, to embrace all life and realize we are into beings, that we are shaped by our gut microbiome, we will always be made to feel powerless each time. And it's interesting that fake food is being pushed on us in the name of climate change, when it has, it's a sure way to increase energy use, to increase fossil fuel use, to increase chemical use. It will make the climate crisis worse. But in any case, the clear, the first element of food is, is it healthy? If processed food is unhealthy, more processed food in labs will be un more unhealthy. And we have to bring the debate of food back to health, away from climate. I wrote a book called Soil Not Oil, 
where I did show that the industrial globalized system is responsible for 50% of the greenhouse gases. And this globalized system that they are planning will be responsible for even higher emissions. So it's not a climate solution, but it is for sure a new health problem. We have to redefine agriculture and food as health systems. And, and we have to realize that every time they come out and say, you give health foods for cures, it's not allowed, but food is health. And, and this wider knowledge movement and dislodging, you know, this, the dislodging the, the dictatorship of this contrived mechanistic science. Mechanistic science is not science because it misses out relationships. It misses out processes. It misses out dynamic change. It misses out self-organization. And I think the science element, the technology element, and the economy element as working together are reducing our possibilities to see how much potential we have that we have so much epistemic potential, so much knowledge potential, and we need to start reclaiming all that knowledge, including indigenous knowledge and the diverse sciences that show us the connections between the planet and us, between our food and our health. Technologies, technologies, as you were citing, you know, are meant to be tools to be controlled by us. They cannot become the new instruments of dictatorship and control. And definitely the idea of the fourth industrial revolution as the new economy is the new mythology of our times. We need new tools, but those tools are tools that deepen our relationship with the earth and with ourselves and with our communities. And those tools are available. It's just that we have to spread them more. And yes, the media won't cover it. It doesn't matter, I, really. Vandana, I have one last issue to address. <clears throat> it's probably the most important. Throughout my entire life, and I'm sure on yours as well, you have to stop at times and ask, why aren't the average people in this world, and a full spectrum of them, from the professional class to the working class to the poor class, why are they not joining in these protests in the United States? If you add up all the registered Democrats and Republicans, they're dwarfed, dwarfed by the uh, unaffiliated independents who once were Democrats or Republicans and generally saw how corrupt they were and decided no longer to support one ideology or the other. But they're not doing anything. And the class that's least likely, from my experience, I've led over 150 demonstrations. Um, I've, I've yet to see the large bulk of those people being doctors, lawyers, engineers, professors, uh, CPAs, architects, etc., the professional class. Instead, it's almost always the poorer class and the working class. Now, historically, the largest class was the working class, and today it still is, the working class becoming the poor class. So on the one hand, there's a small number of individuals working for positive change, estimated about 7%. Now, that's still in the United States, it's still a lot of people that still gives you uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of around 25 million people. However, that still gives you 300 million people, 300 plus million people who are accepting whatever is stated. They're keeping quiet unless something specifically and uniquely adversely affects them. 
And yet everything is changing in part because there's little to no resistance. So what do we do to motivate not the people in power, but rather to motivate people who are going to be adversely affected? And who, like with Monsanto, they were, they, were, they were going out and buying their Roundup and spraying it around their houses, not realizing that glyphosate causes cancer. What do we do to get people to pay attention to what's important in their life? Because right now, the average person is more interested in, yes, food is more expensive, but they're not eating healthy food, even if they could afford it, which would be less expensive, but healthier for them. No, they're not buying organic produce when they should be, uh, if, you know, if they're not used to it. They're not exercising as they should. They're not dealing with stress in an appropriate manner. Uh, they are not pushing back against inappropriate uh, controls and surveillance, etc. What is the message for them? Because without them, we will not win this battle. I think part of the reason that people are not responding is because very effectively, the elite have used divide and rule policies. They have created fear and hate to create divisions within society. And part of our work is to create a new unity, a new unity through love and through solidarity. So overcoming fear and hate, that has become the dominant currency of our times. The second is we do need new bridges. You know, in a way, at this point, the mainstream environment movement is working for the agenda of the corporations and the Black Rocks and the World Economic Forums, they are thinking that more money will somehow protect the planet when more money is exactly what's destroying the planet. So we need the deep ecology movement and the rights of the working people to become one movement of the rights of the earth and the rights of people. Human rights and the earth rights have to be seen as totally interconnected. And when we do that, then people realize this cost of living crisis is really a resource alienation crisis. We've been robbed of our resources and we've robbed of our ability to produce for ourselves as communities and take care of our health as communities, reclaiming what we can do for ourselves and reclaiming the resources as the commons that allow us to generate our lives and livelihoods and well-being. That is the work for the future. I agree. My final statement, if you could give me a, an answer on this, I would appreciate it. Historically, those of us who have grown up with authentic liberal or conservative values have wanted our freedom in the marketplace so we have ideas. So we, if we had an idea, someone could challenge it. But at least we were not prevented from sharing an idea. Today, the corporate Democrats and the corporate liberals that are completely different than the true and traditional liberal are leading what is undoubtedly the most fascistic McCarthyism-like agenda against anyone who speaks out about anything that uh, challenges the status quo. And so you also have to surmount that, that you can't rely upon groups that historically, whether it's in the university or in the, uh, in the media, would take an idea from you and say, this is a good idea. Let's, let's put this idea out into the marketplace. Now you are to be condemned. Others are to be condemned because, not because you're wrong, but because you're right. And there's never an apology from those who are wrong. 
and yet the apologies come from those who are right, as if I have to apologize for helping people where maybe a doctor couldn't do it, as I did with my 1,200 AIDS patients that all lived. Uh, and you have to apologize, as if I'm sorry, great, uh, uh, the, the great deity of uh, orthodox medicine, that I was able to do something that you weren't, not that I'm brighter or better, it's just I took a different approach. And we seem to be terrified of taking any approach that does not align itself perfectly and symmetrically with the orthodox views. So aren't we also self-censoring? Aren't we also self-limiting? Aren't we also fearful of the consequences of being right and challenging that which is wrong? Well, I think it's an obligation in being human and being free to challenge what's wrong and challenge what's fabricated. And right now, the challenge we face is the threat of an extinction crisis. Extinction crisis is not about other species only. It's about us because we are dependent on other species. And it's, it's about 99% who have been announced as being disposable and useless people. Uh, and that's why speaking the truth today is not just revolutionary, it is the only way to stay alive. And, and the people who, who live by untruth are not the ones who can be the true judges of what's true and not true. It's people living in struggle, people living honest lives, people living lives of cooperation with each other, people defending true democracy, which has to be a democracy with the rest of life. That is where, and yes, the short-term power and domination that created a certain kind of privilege, that is fading, that phase is going, and a new emergence is taking place. And just before that emergence, there will be all kinds of witch hunts there will be all kinds of silencing. There will be all kinds of closures. But our job is to keep that seed alive so that we can plant it. Our job is to keep the light alive so that we can drive the darkness away. Well said. Thank you very much. And I'll see that you also are sent out a copy today of the latest documentary called Science for Hire. I want to. Oh, I want you yeah. to know. That's I would so love important. to see that because that's what I've had to deal with all along. Good. It is if science for hire. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's it's just out. Um, and also, if you could just stay on the line for a moment, so uh, Dylan or one of the people, Kyle, in the studio can get the, where we send the tape. It'll go out to you today. All right. Okay. Good. Thank you very much. My guest, Vandana Shiva, Dr. Vandana Shiva, I'm Gary Nall. This has been the Progressive Commentary Hour. Thank you all for listening, and have a nice day.